What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to the latest episode of the Hashishin, presented by Rosin Evolution. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, episode 21, we'll be hearing from the guys behind the Real Deal Resin, Dustin and Sam. They're busy dudes, but thankfully I got a chance to catch up with them. So definitely stay tuned for that. You know, having a podcast is still a little odd for me. So when people reach out telling me that they've learned from it or they've been inspired by the stories or gained a new appreciation for cannabis resin, I feel incredibly humbled by that. But I just feel fortunate to be a medium in bringing these conversations. In reality, the people that should be thanked are the people sharing their experiences, the hash makers, and the people who give us the resources to continue to bring you these conversations, our Patreon community. I personally feel lucky to have this space because I'm just a fan, and it's a place where I've got to meet some really cool people, interact with like-minded people, and we're all brought together by the love of the resin. So if at any point you can or want to become part of the community on Patreon, check out additional interviews, be part of our community chat, get early releases, etc., etc., you can visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in. That's the hashish inn. As always, the easiest way is probably the link in our Instagram bio. On a personal note, there's a long-standing community member whose mother's health isn't doing so well. And I just want to take a moment to send good vibes to her. If you could take a moment to send good vibes to her and good intentions to her, I would be thankful for that. A big shout out to our sponsors, Rosin Evolution. Again, you can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on their Instagram at rosinevolution100. That's the number 100. I've been calling them the best bags in the game. What makes them the best? I would say consistency in their bag quality, consistency in the accurateness, consistency in their reliability, and consistency in getting you your bags when you need them. Regardless of what you're trying to achieve with your rosin, whether it's batter, fresh press, jams, THCA, Rosin Evolution's bags are the most reliable medium to get you there. So visit their site, rosinevolution.com for all your rosin needs. Remember, they also have full mesh wash bags They are just as accurate, just as reliable, and extremely reasonably well-priced. And if you like saving additional money, use our savings code, the letters THI7110. That's THI710 altogether. It saves you 5% on your entire Rosin Evolution order. A big shout out to our homies at Low Temp Plates. You can visit them at lowtemp-plates.com or on their Instagram at lowtemp.com. Dot plates. I'm really excited to be able to share something I've known for a little bit and that's the fact that Low Temp has now announced their new 75 gallon commercial grade washing system. They'll make these available for pre-order as of the 1st of October. It'll be very limited so as a commercial washer you should definitely keep your eyes peeled. As with their presses, Low Temp Plates aims to bring you the highest quality equipment at a price that provides you the most bang for your buck. The one thing I will say about it is that it's unbeatable. It's made entirely of stainless steel from top to bottom. It's controlled by a beautiful seven inch smart screen. Again, as with their presses, they made the unit with modularity in mind, 
allowing your system to grow with your needs. As always, it's made in the USA. And of course, if you're looking for a high quality rosin press backed by a lifetime warranty, visit lowtemp, that's L-O-W-T-E-M-P dash plates.com and use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, standing for the Hashish in to save 5%. I've had a few people hit me up lately that have used the code, have saved money and have loved their new press, which is what we love to hear. So thank you for that. And last but not least, a shout out to our homies, Pele Polare, who you can visit at pelepolareco.com. That's P-E-L-L-E-P-O-L-A-R-E-C-O.com or on their Instagram at pele.polare. They're creating high quality thermal jacketing systems. If you need it in the shape of a five gallon washing machine, they got you. If you need it in the shape of a thousand gallon plastic drum, they got you. What will it do for you? It'll battle condensation for you, which helps keep your vessel colder for longer. That means that you'll use less ice, which not only saves you money, time, and your back, but it keeps you from adding fresh ice into your hash, possibly with new jagged edges and creating more contamination. So if you want to use less ice, spend less money, save time, and possibly produce a cleaner product, all for a very reasonable price and excellent quality thermal jacket, do yourself a favor and visit www.pelepolareco.com and save 5% by using our discount code, the letters T-H-I, standing for The Hashish In. I want to thank Alice from The Girls in Green for doing an interview with us for the web series last month, which is available to our Patreon community. Thank you to the people who left reviews on iTunes, including Max Dog Farms and Select Fino. As always, if you can leave us an iTunes review, especially if it's written, we love to hear from you guys. I appreciate you listening, and I hope you really enjoy the episode. Today, I'm stoked to be here with Dustin and Sam from The Real Deal Resin. You can follow them on Instagram at Real Deal Resin and two underscores after that. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing good, Great. man. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I appreciate you guys doing this with me and sitting down and talking. Thank you. We appreciate you having us on, man. We're stoked to be yeah. here. Pleasure. Pleasure. So I'm a big fan of your brand and I'm a big fan of your, let's call it creativity. And, you know, I've never, funny enough, had the pleasure of trying your resin, but I respect your work. And the time and effort that it definitely seems to go into creating, would you call it content for the brand? Yeah, I would definitely, I would, I would call it an experience. What type of experience are you seeking to create for the end user? I guess if you could call it that. Uh, I guess the mission is just to create a sense of happiness and nostalgia kind of taking people back to like when they're kids or back to a time where like there's just less problems like before adulthood when you start getting into like bills and just real life shit you know uh that's kind of why we went with a lot of retro logos and stuff like that and that's why we use a lot of memes and just funny things in the marketing because if we can make people laugh it can kind of just make them forget about their problems for that one instant and 
the same thing goes with the hash. Like if they can smoke it and get high, then they might forget about whatever they're dealing with just for a little bit. And, you know, everybody has something that they're dealing with. So if we can help them forget about that for a little bit, like that's kind of the mission. And so you brought up the word marketing. I'm curious between the two of you, who kind of focuses more on creating this content and how much time goes into that? Cause it seems like you guys are always pumping out something like you said, whether they're memes or a new logo or a new tea or a new mood mat or whatever it may be. You're just constantly active. So outside of farming and making hash, you're also doing this. So how much time is going into that and who's the main person behind that? Well, I'm the one that usually makes all the memes and shit like that, but we both come up with things just through like our daily experiences, like just even being together on the farm, like we might just be saying something and it spurs a creative element that makes me think away or Sam might think about something and just bring it up and it might not materialize at first, but like a couple weeks later or a couple months later, like a shirt or a video clip or something might have been, uh, created just from like the moments of just being together um so i wouldn't say like i dedicate time like i don't sit down from like five to eight and say this is when i got to make memes i would say it's more of like just like living and just trying to get out there and do shit that like makes me feel creative and get inspired to make shit you know like seeing stuff uh anything that just makes me think a different way is what spurs it so during the day we're usually on the farm all day so at night when I get home, I usually sit down and try to just rattle out a couple memes or think of some t-shirt designs for like an hour or two, but it's usually from whatever we did throughout the day. How do you feel about it, Sam? Uh, yeah, definitely just, just working and we'd always, we're always working and getting high. So there's always just stupid stuff coming out of people's mouth and it's usually that stupid stuff is usually something good, you know, <laughs> it makes other people laugh. And, uh, also our, our graphic designer, Jacob, he's huge. He kills it. So yeah, there wouldn't be any of the shirts no. or anything like that without Jacob. Like, uh, we tell him like the things that we like, but we don't make any of the designs. It's all Jacob. Uh, <laughs> he lives in Pittsburgh and we all went to college together. And, uh, I moved out to California first and eventually Sam came and then Jacob came and we all lived together and we started the brand together and Jacob had to move back to help his grandparents, but he still does all the designs for us, uh, from his crib. And without him, we wouldn't have had any of the merch. We wouldn't have the website. So yeah, Jacob is a crucial part of the team and we're really, really grateful for him. And it's funny because he didn't even like wrestling and shit until we got him into it we would watch so many old clips and stuff at night that he started to really get into it too. And it's just been a fun process. Yeah, that's cool. So it sounds like there's definitely like a third member to the group. There is no doubt. He's the third partner. He does all the actual design work. He's an artist. Like he can vector all the files. He's made the website. He keeps track of all the inventory. He's amazing. And Sam, how important would you say all that is to your brand. Oh, it's crucial because without that, it's you're really trying to sell your product. 
you know, with, when you market it like this, it's literally, it sells itself. Cause people love that stuff. Yeah. So that's something I kind of wanted to talk about with you guys is, you know, do you feel like there's a fine line between having a cool brand and becoming dependent on that? You know, if you have success with good branding, how do you continue to pursue excellence when it comes down to the resin? Yeah, I kind of felt like that after we got established and we kind of took off really quickly. I was like, damn, how do we sustain this? And then I really this year just focused back on the resin completely. And we're just on the farm all day. Like last year, I thought that you had to like, once you became popular, I thought that you had to like stay popular. I thought you had to make something funny and do everything perfect. And it created a lot of pressure for me. But then I realized the reason we became like popular in the first place was because we were working so hard and we were on the farm and we cared about the resin and we were passionate about it. And that's why we were there from the beginning. It wasn't to be cool. And, and then once I, I just got focused back on that, or I kind of lost that sense of pressure to be cool or to try to always seem trendy or funny. And I, I lost that sense of pressure to sustain or build at like any type of rate. And I just wanted to, make sure we had good resin and so this year we just been really focusing on the farm and it's yeah. starting to show ash is number one we just we're potheads so that's like the main thing good smoke we love smoking good so we can grow that good smoke it's even better yeah so you guys mentioned that you are from pittsburgh and it sounds like you guys came out to NorCal like a lot of other people. What was the motivation behind that? Mine was just uh, smoking good weed, honestly. <laughs> uh, you can't, it's hard to find it back in Pittsburgh and you got to pay a lot. So I just, I really love smoking. So that was my whole motivation. If I could make money off something I love, then that's even better. Yeah, same here. Uh, I remember watching videos in PA of the high times uh, in like Amsterdam and shit before they could have them in the States. And then I was in college and they started having them in the States for the first time in Denver. And I flew out for the second one, the second recreational high times in Denver when I was still in college. And that just like blew my mind because I had only seen any of that stuff like on YouTube before. And then I just started watching videos of like uh, big grows in NorCal um, like Mendo dope and stuff like that. And that's what really opened my eyes to California while I was still living in Pennsylvania. And it really made me want to try to get out of here and start growing. But it's always been just to smoke some good weed because we love that shit. Yeah. So Dustin, you said that you were the first one to make the move. Was that a challenging thing to do? Was that by yourself? Uh, yeah. So I was a senior in college and Sam was like a semester or two behind me, a year behind me. And I went out for the summer and I worked on this farm kind of just like to learn. I wasn't really getting paid, but I did learn. And 
I ended up never going back for like my last semester of college and I just stayed in Cali and uh, I started running my own spot and I just had like a fucking a little hoop in the backyard but like it was mine and it's all I ever dreamed of was having my grow in Cali like it was, it was everything I could have dreamed of that was like three years ago and uh, yeah I've just been here ever since I was here by myself for like a year and that was tough. I didn't know anybody at all, but I met a lot of people through like glass, like bongs, good way to meet people. And then Sam came out. So once he came out, that's when we really started to get things together. And even like when I was out here by myself, our partner, Jacob, the one that makes all the logos, he would fly out just to help me trim because I was by myself. So I would have been trimming by myself. And I brought out our other buddy from Pennsylvania. So yeah, they've always been here helping me from the beginning, but I was the first to move out and then slowly they came. And Sam, what kind of stuff were you guys smoking back in Pittsburgh? Oh, uh, dude. Um, honestly, before like I moved out here, just like shatter. If you could get your hands on some gold shatter, that's even better. But a lot of this shit was pretty dark. But I, I would always, always look for the good shit. Anytime you can find really good weed, always have to scoop the really good weed up. But it's it. It's not very prevalent back there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I didn't even I never I didn't even smoke hash until I got to Cali, like water hash. It was all BHOs, diamonds, and shatter. Yeah, we were just getting shatter. Like we'd be happy with anything that was gold and said nug run when we were in yeah. college. Like I remember, I was just smoking all weed. I would smoke like seven blunts a day. Oh, that's all I moved was packs, like just flour. And Sam is the one that introduced me. Like my homie said, you should meet this kid. He had wax. And I was like, what? So I think I got my first wax off of Sam. Like we didn't even know each other. We were just at the same college. And that shit blew my mind. (laughs) My homie Dylan. Shout out Dylan. (laughs) Kent State. I I drive to Kent State because it was like an hour and a half drive. And if I wanted to get dabs, I didn't have to go there. So I collect from anybody that wanted it and I pick <laughs> up like as much as I could and drive it back, drive it over the border. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It was never anything big, but just enough to get everybody smoked uh, out, you just know. Some head stash. <laughs> some head. But yeah, that's where I'd get my, my good shit, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how was that transitioning from smoking flour to now smoking oil. Oh, dude, as soon as I did my first stab, I went and bought a rig instantly. Like, <laughs> I fell in love with the first rip, honestly. And I, I don't really smoke too much flour anymore. It's just, if it's really good, I'll, I'll buy some just because I like it here and there, but I smoke hash. Yeah, I barely smoke flour at all. Like, barely at all. I respect it. But after you start smoking hash, it's hard to leave the concentrated taste of it. Like, I, I respect the flour. You wouldn't have the hash without it ever. But honestly, I barely smoke any flour. We don't dry a single flour. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that gets dried is like broken branches. Yeah, a couple broken branches. That's about it. Yeah, it's so funny and weird how that has happened now. I mean, a lot of people that grow for solventless. They're like, look, I don't even have any of my own like weed for head stash. You know, it all got frozen, even the tops. That's exactly. You can always freeze dry it. 
<laughs> yeah, that's funny that you bring that up. Have you guys ever toyed freeze drying flour? No, we, I no. haven't tried it yet. But I've seen we had have homies that done it, and it turns out pretty fire. Yeah, shout out Cash Tree Mason. He has some fire, and he freeze dries some of his stuff. And when you guys are trying the, the freeze dried stuff, is it the flour that you're smoking, or are you just smoking the resin? I've smoked Cash Tree's flour that was freeze dried, and it was awesome. I believe it was the grandma's cookies. Um, but all of our resin is freeze dried. We don't air dry anything. Right. So switching topics a little bit, going back to, you brought up the wrestling. Obviously the wrestling is a big part of your brand. Were you kind of the driving force behind the wrestling, Dustin? Yeah, I think it happened by accident. I, I remember there was a meme or something I had made that was wrestling or something. Sam, what 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 made us use a wrestler for the first logo? Uh, dude, we were just we had the real deal name, and we were we thinking had the name first, right? Yeah, we were thinking what like what's real deal? And I remember saying like real deal, like Holyfield. And then as soon as I said that, you were like, "Oh shit, '90s wrestling man, it'll it'll kill it." And. That's that's how the first one came about. Picked Hogan. Hogan's, Hogan's the best. Hogan's a beast. Yeah, but the first one wasn't anybody. The first one, we told Jacob we want uh, we want to do this wrestling. I don't want it. I want the I want her like a wrestler's head. So the first one he ever drew was a wrestler. It was the only one ever that wasn't based off of like a real famous character. And uh, at first, it had a face and everything. And I was like that's sweet but let's just remove like the facial features and put the real deal resin text over the face and then after he did that we had the first logo and it was a dude with blonde hair you don't see it out there that much but that was the first one ever like it i feel i don't know i'd have to ask jacob i feel like it's kind of loosely based on rick flair but it's not we still haven't done rick flair and then as soon as we did that i was like we got to do hogan and uh and then Ultimate Warrior, because he was one of my favorites. And then once we had, like, the first three or four, I was like, damn, this is, like, this is going to be, like, a collectible series. Like, we can go and do any person's face. And I realized that from the beginning. Like, lately, like, we just started to drop, like, other 90s icons, like Mike Tyson, um, Dennis Rodman. And we've even veered off into, like, pop culture. We just did Riff Raff. And that's been kind of the plan ever since the beginning was we realized we could just interchange it to anything that's kind of noticeable. Uh, and uh, I think that's really cool to blend shit that people already notice with resin. It's just uh, almost like an Andy Warhol effect. He was from Pittsburgh and he just blended pop culture in with art in a way that it was just enticing to the eye because it's one image that people are already familiar with. And then it's something they like. Like if you like resin and then you see these images that you're already familiar with, you're probably going to like it more. So from there, it was just a snowball. From the beginning, uh, we loved the wrestling and we, we kept with it a lot, but we knew that we didn't want to just use just wrestlers' faces forever. So that's why we've kind of veered off and we're just going to use like anything that we think is cool or maybe popular at the time. We did a Joe Exotic logo. Yeah, we did, Joe. <laughs> for his 15 minutes of fame. 
people wanted moon mats and we would totally love to do stuff like that. But sometimes like the production takes so long and people don't realize that. So like all this merchant stuff we have coming out, we didn't just like say, all right, Jacob pump out this design and it was done. And then we didn't just give it to the printer and we got our shirts back in a day. This stuff takes weeks and months to get ordered. Like mood mats takes so long to get produced. So a lot of people wanted like the Joe Exotic, but we didn't even do it because I knew by the time they would have been done, a lot of people already forgot about him. Like he's not very relevant right now. So that's one thing that does take a lot of time is just the planning of the drops and the execution of the merch. And that's why we're really grateful for people like Jacob and the people that we work with because they make it as smooth as possible while we're stuck on the farm and stuck on the hill to put out cool stuff that people can still grab because I remember before we ever had a brand, I loved repping my favorite brands. I would go to all the cups, like the Canacons, the hemp cons, the high times. And I would go to third gen's booth and I would buy shirts with the hash. Cause I love rocking my favorite company's uh, gear, you know? So once we started our own brand, I wanted to try to be able to provide that for people too. And it's a cool alternative than just rocking a bunch of corporate shit. Like, Everything is small batch. All the shirts are limited, you know, 50 or less, and we're never going to reproduce the drop, you know? So if you get something and then it sells out, that's pretty cool. Like, it's all part of the experience. Yeah, that is cool. Like you mentioned earlier, it almost becomes like a collectible item. And once the brand kind of establishes itself, you know, I find it interesting, like you said, kind of moving into other sectors where now it's not just wrestlers, but it is artists like Riff Raff, which is kind of a, a favorite of mine just because I have an odd fondness for him. But, you know, you He's brought up... He's from Texas. You got to love him. Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not originally from Texas, but yeah, Riff is from Texas and uh, he, he made something out of nothing. So I can I can respect that. But that's that's why I respect him, too. Like he's a hustler and he's creative and I can respect anybody that is just a hard worker and brings creative aspects to life because it inspires other people. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but you brought up an interesting point. And it ties back into this idea of, of popularity is you told me when you first created the brand, you put up an image on social media and before you even got a chance, somebody had gone in and already taken the Instagram real deal resin name and a bunch of variations of it. You know, I found that to be kind of a crazy and almost cool thing that somebody would want to do that without really even having anything to show for it at the time, I guess you could say. Yeah. It, I mean, I guess you could look at it both ways. It could be a compliment that somebody was like, wow, I need to take that idea. But at the same time, it's kind of a bummer that it could show like the kind of cutthroat aspect of the cannabis community that like a lot of people don't know until you're in it. And it's just like how far some people will go to not just be successful themselves, but to try to make sure other people aren't successful. And in my opinion, the only reason somebody would, so I just, I posted uh, like the first logo, that prototype logo that I was talking about. I posted it to my personal Instagram page before I made the real deal resin page, like an idiot. And somebody grabbed like five Instagram handles that was real deal resin, real deal resin, the number one real deal resin, like dot, there's like four or five of them. So the original real deal resin page was real deal resin underscore. And then we got deleted. So now we're real deal resin with two underscores. So yeah, like you could take it as a compliment, but it's also some people will really go to any length to kind of 
be successful or prevent other success. So that's kind of a bummer about the industry. Yeah, I agree with that, Ben. I, I think it is a compliment in the sense that obviously somebody thought it was a good idea or good enough to take, but I do agree that it's a cutthroat business. I mean, I think almost any business is, but the cannabis business uh, seems to be especially so. Would you agree yeah. with that, Sam? Yeah, definitely. I've seen it for sure. Oh, yeah, dude. Like, we've... Like, but in the black market, you still have to worry about getting robbed and shit like that, you know? So, like, if you're ever dealing with shady individuals, that's just a whole other ball game. Right. You know, uh, just to kind of cap off this point that we're talking about, the brand, I'm curious if you guys are at all concerned with using any of the imagery that you do and for example, having issues with a wrestler or a personality down the line? Uh, honestly, right now I don't have any worries at all for a couple reasons. Uh, one if any wrestler would see it and get that offended, like I'd be surprised, like especially a lot of the old ones that we use, they're just, they're so past their prime that they love any recognition they get. And this is all in dedication to them. Like we're not trying to steal anything from them. You know, uh, this is all a pure tribute to them because they inspired us. So I haven't been worried about it from that aspect. We're so small, like we're tiny. We're, we're a two, three person company, you know, I haven't been worried in that aspect just because like I haven't expected anybody to really see us. Uh, Vince McMahon is all about his money though. So I don't know if you ever thought that we were making money off his stuff, he could totally hit us with a cease and desist. I like, I know artists cause I go through a lot of artists that do a lot of wrestling stuff and I have seen one or two that do get uh cease and desist notices. And so if that ever happened to us, I would just take it in stride and, uh, like I said, how we've moved away from wrestlers. We haven't moved away, but we're going to keep transitioning into more pop culture things. But I want to establish our brand where eventually we don't even need to use any people like that. And it can just be like the text graphics and just cool, uh, unique graphics that Jacob and other artists that we hire and commission to do work for us can make themselves. Um, just good colorways, clean logos. And I think we're not really dependent on the wrestlers. It's just been fun. And I, I'm just going to run it till the wheels fall off because it's fun. And we're young. And, you know, a lot of friends that I talk to that go into the recreational market and all these licensed farms, it seems like a lot of the fun gets taken away real quick. So I'm just trying to enjoy this for as long as we can. I know it might not be very sustainable, but. For as long as we can, we're going to have fun with it. And that's just the main goal is to have fun. So, yeah, we're not worried about it for now. Cool. So, funny enough, this is the our second attempt at kind of linking up. We were talking about how it's kind of crazy how it's been almost a year and a half since we were supposed to link up originally. And everything kind of works out like it needs to. But at that time, you guys had an emergency at the farm and you had to, you know, move some plants around. So tell me about Hill Life. Tell me about moving, you know, from Pittsburgh to a place that's very different. Love the Hill. 
It's sweet. It's tranquil. It's way different from being on the yeah. East Coast. It's pretty cool. Our spot's like really deep. It's not even like on grid or anything. I'm all solar power. My house is solar power. We run like our fans on generators and stuff. But yeah, it's really nice out there. Peaceful. Very peaceful. Uh, the plants just have an energy to them. Like it feels like you're in the presence of like people when you're around the plants. It, it's a lot of times we do night harvests and it's just really cool. The energy out there under those stars because it's just pitch black out there. So you can see all the stars and like pretty much anytime you look up, you'll see a shooting star or a UFO. I don't know what's going on, but the ambiance out there compared to the East coast where it's like all hustle bustle, like East coast, I feel like is more kind of fast paced. Whereas like everybody is like on tighter schedules and like stick to it. And once we got out here, that was one of the biggest things that opened my eyes was kind of like being on hill time or like just being on Cali time was you might say you're going to meet somebody at a certain time, but everything kind of ends up getting pushed back. Or when somebody's coming down off the hill, you kind of know it's going to take longer. Like just all the little hill things that you get used to, like giving directions where, you know, people aren't going to have service. So you got to find landmarks on the hill. So like, all right, like you're going to get to a Y and you're going to see a broke down boat, go right at the boat. And then you're going to get to a rusty shovel about 200 yards up the road. Rusty Stay shovel. to the right at the rusty shovel. <laughs> so things like that have become really cool. Like I like small town fields, you know, a sense of community. That's one of our biggest goals too, is to kind of find a home where we can have a, like a sense of community where like, like I would love to have a, uh, like a single source setup where you can kind of grow and like Mendocino County, I feel like is one of the best counties to grow in. And I, it would be amazing to have like a single source setup where you could grow there, make the hash there, and then also have a market where you could drop a substantial amount, like in your own community. It's weird because in NorCal, everybody's growers and everybody has homies. So like, I feel like in the, the marketplace right now, it's, uh, not moving as much product like you got to go to the cities but i would love like a small town vibe where you can kind of connect with the people that are coming in and buying your hash and kind of know who's experiencing it because we put a lot into it so i would love to see what it's providing people yeah hey that's kind of cool man i mean it's interesting that you bring up the point that it almost seems like norcal is saturated you know, and that as that product maybe goes into some of the bigger cities, even a little further south, it becomes a lot more, I don't know what the word is, um, hunted for, you know, wanted. Oh, there's no doubt when it comes to like small batch brands, the farther it gets, the probably harder it is to get. Um, yeah, like our product, I, I know it does go, it does get around and it doesn't just stay where we're at because it is saturated. Like I think the saturation actually may cause uh, some things to get pushed away quicker because like a lot of people in the area, a lot of people in Mendocino, they might not want to pay as much for anything just because you're surrounded by things everywhere. And a lot of people are growers, so everybody thinks that 
the best and everybody thinks their shit's the best. So why should they pay anybody X amount when like they can do it themselves, you know, but you get a little farther South to the Bay and not everybody's growing. It's a way higher population also. So if you're starting with a small batch and you get to a, pl- a place like the Bay with a high population, you might lose a substantial amount of your product already. So the scarcity is increasing. So then if you start going farther, I know a lot of product goes ours, but just anybody's LA. It's like the biggest hub of anything. Once you get there, the population just increases tenfold and the scarcity increases and the price is probably going up again. And then from there, probably San Diego. And then if it would uh, go from out of state there, it just gets even more scarce. So it's weird how a lot of it can be created in certain areas, but it all gets pushed out to and it ends up in areas where it's harder and harder to find, you know, um, it makes sense, but that's why I would love a place where you can drop it in your community and it wouldn't get pushed out as far, you know, because then you could have a personal connection with the people that are experiencing it. We don't really get, well, Instagram enables us to talk to people that get to try our resin and they, they tell us how much they enjoy it. But like, as far as face to face interaction and just getting to sesh our resin with people, we don't get to do that that much. Cause we're stuck on the hill. Like we're not at any sessions. We're not running around selling it to people. So we don't really get to see anybody or like talk to them about it. So it would be cool to have something like that. It would have yeah. been cool to be in the prop 215 era. Right. I wish they still had those farmers markets and all those little events. That I remember when you first moved out here, there was all kinds of different stuff. But like yeah. when I got out here and the new laws burn, they, it went from all being like all small farm stuff to just all corporate stuff. It seems like no. Yeah. And any of the small farm stuff is usually just getting white labeled on the shelves and they don't even get the recognition for growing it. Uh, it's sad. When I first moved out here, the prop 215 was amazing. We would go to farmer's markets. Like it blew my mind coming from Pennsylvania to come out here. There'd be farmer's markets and, uh, and third gen would have a booth, uh, like Skittles. Yeah, Skittles would have a booth. <laughs> yeah, like HBK Genetics. Uh, everybody would be out there, and you could just walk around from booth to booth, a regular farmers market, and people would have their weed beside their vegetables. You could buy celery or joints. You could buy an an ounce of sun grown for sixty bucks. You know, like it was amazing. I would go and buy all the Skittles I could. From the first time I tried Skittles, I wanted all of it I could possibly get. So we would go to those farmer's markets and buy all we could get the live resin. Cause that was before we were smoking hash as much. That was back in like the live resin days. And then also up in Humboldt, that trim scene, they would have, uh, they would have like farmer's markets up there on Sundays. And that's where I met uh, a lot of people that ended up teaching me a lot, like dragging with matches. I met him cause he just had a booth up there on like a Sunday and I went and I bought some live resin and then, uh, he became one of my biggest mentors as far as growing and just hitting him up. Anytime I had a question, I could just hit him up. Somebody that's been growing for over 20 years. And that was just incredible to have experiences like that. And it was all because of Prop 215 and the ability to go to these open forums and face to face connect with people. And, uh, it's really sad that the, the new laws have kind of really constricted, like, I don't think you can have any of those anymore. Um, it, it sucks. Yeah, I've heard that sentiment from various people, man. And do you feel like having lost Prop 215 and Prop 64 having come in 
has forced more people to be black market? Honestly, the smaller mom and pop farms, probably definitely as far as the ones that don't have a lot of money up to pump into the licensing and all the hoops that you have to jump through and all the people that you have to have to come to your farm. Like it's a lot and it can drain you. You might have like savings that you worked your whole life for and lose it all in a year trying to go permitted. So that's where you see like a lot of people take on investors. So they might lose a majority of their just to be able to stay in business. And that's sad. And pretty soon you're going to see the corporate wave coming in. And I feel like the weed industry is probably going to be a reflection of the beer industry where you might have a 10 to 15% craft market and the rest is just going to be Budweiser. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting, especially when we're talking about hash because hash is kind of a unique thing. So we talked about how you guys smoked oil in Pittsburgh and now you said, you know, you were smoking on the live resin at the farmer's markets during the Prop 215 era. At what point did you guys start smoking bubble hash or rosin? It's been really cool to see the Patreon community grow. I always like to take an extra moment to thank them for allowing episode 21 to be produced and give a shout out to some of our biggest contributors, including Haji, aka Solventless Terps, the homie Kevin from Lifted and Dina, Kyle, the Full Melt Fiend, the brothers from Hashmakers Union 73 in Ohio who are crushing it, the homies Nate and Daniel, Wisely Hash in Maine, Lost Roots Hash in Oklahoma, American Hashmakers in Washington, Mario in Illinois, James the Casual Cultivator, Adam from Mission Hill Melts in Massachusetts, our friend Jen Doe 420, Totem Solventless in California, Montreux Gardens in Denver, and our homie Big C. I thank each and every one of you for allowing us to continue to produce content. Now back to the episode. Um, I think back, what, when we first were getting... When you were getting it from third, from Compassionate Heart, you get all that Skittles. That's when we really started doing it. Yeah, third gen Skittles. Right in in Ukiah, there's a dispensary that he drops all of his stuff to. And we live close by there, so it was was perfect. (laughs) Yeah, um, the Compassionate Heart. I would go down there when they would get the drops from third gen and they would just have slabs of those hash rolls. And, and uh, ever since then, we've kind of started to only smoke hash. We, when we first started getting the Skittles slabs, like we still would smoke some live resin because we were turning our gardens into live resin. That was before we were making hash. So we would just freeze all of our stuff and have our homies uh, make live resin. Okay, and what was it about the hash that appealed to you more, or maybe still does appeal to you more? Oh, it just tastes so much better, <laughs> and then you, and you know it's cleaner. So you know that that's just the plus. But just just overall taste, I just love the even with weed. I love weed that burn with white ash and taste really clean. Because you can really taste everything they put in it. It's crazy. 
Yeah, I feel like the hash I get a better high from. Yeah, um, that too. So, would you say that growing now for trichomes specifically versus even growing for a hydrocarbon extract has made you better growers? Oh, for sure. For sure. Better all around. Growing, harvesting. It's forced us into becoming... Well, we already were before, uh, when we would freeze for live resin, we were converted to organic. My very first year when I had my first garden, I was just using bottled nutrients because I didn't really know what I was doing. But the first year Sam and me were together, we were going organic even before we were making hash. But then once we realized how much of a difference it makes in the resin between using salts and synthetic nutrients compared to just all organic inputs we like not only focused on it but dedicated our time to learning how to improve our uh, resin output small tests and like weird things like i feel like sometimes maybe if a plant gets stressed it might put out more resin and you might never think like that until you are just growing for a couple of years and you notice like one plant might have accidentally got stressed in flower. And then when you do the wash, that plant yielded really good. And those are the coolest things to see because like we go by a set schedule for our organic teas and we top dress with like biological crop solutions. Uh, we love them. That's where we got a lot of our soil at this year too. But uh, as far as like really learning, I feel like there's no better thing than experience and just, really paying attention to what you put into your beds, how much you had in your beds, the square footage, and then seeing exactly how much resin you pulled out at the end of the run and knowing exactly what went into that run, you know, to try to compare to other ones like temperatures, uh, anything like that can make a huge difference in the, in the percentages. Last year, honestly, I feel like we were hitting a median of more around 3% with a lot of our stuff. But this year, everything's hitting over 5%. So I feel like it's definitely because we just got our shit together a little bit more. But also, I feel like we, we truly are growing for pure resin. We don't do anything to increase the yield of the flower whatsoever. And I feel like uh, that's one of the biggest things that a lot of people are afraid to do if you're getting into like becoming a hash maker and you were growing for flour at first, it's you're, you're going to be afraid to lose those flour yields, especially if you're talking to people that are like growing with bottled nutrients. So say you're working, you have a buddy that's a grower and you're trying to get him to convert his grower over to a bunch of hash strains because you know, it'll end up making more money. Somebody that's used to using bottled nutrients and getting really fat swollen up buds. It's hard to talk into taking the lower yield on the flour weight because the resin uh, output will be higher so things like that are it, it's fun to try to show people the light but it, sometimes it can be hard to convince people that are used to just going for rock hard buds that resin is the way yeah and you brought up something that a couple people have brought up when talking to them and that's stress and i'm curious if you guys have been using any particular types of stress on your plants 
to see that increase from three to five percent? This year, I think the increase is based off of the soil switch to biological crop solutions and just a strict regimen of teas weekly. We use the biological crop solutions recipe for the tea also. And we started using them because of Aoti. Uh, he always said they had great soil and they're, they have very informative pamphlets and everything. And I think that was the biggest thing. As far as the stress goes, it's been a super hot summer. Um, super hot. So I think they were stressed by the 100 degree days for sure. And I was very afraid of what they were going to do, but we've already pulled down uh, two depths and everything's hitting over 5%. And that's in 100 degree days. So it's really interesting. And we're going to be running the same strains in the fall. So it's going to be interesting to compare and the cooler weather, how they do. And is that something that you guys keep close track of? For example, uh, you know, your yields from season to season and possibly be able to lock in some of these variables? Obviously, the heat is not something that you can control, but. Yeah, the heat's not something you can control, but um, last year we were kind of so overwhelmed because we were operating a couple different farms that we couldn't, and we had a, a partner. So everything, like all the material got split so much that it was hard to keep track of what beds did specifically. This is the first year where everything is just me and Sam. So we are keeping track of specifically what every single bed puts out. And we're also going to be able to compare smart pots compared to beds. And we're going to see how that resin production does as far as maybe the aeration to the root zone somehow creates better resin for the plant. Whereas the beds don't get like uh, the same aeration that the smart pots would obviously. But I don't know. Right now, I'm a bigger fan of beds. I love beds. I feel like the plants just explode. They can share everything that you put into the bed. I feel like when you create beds, we're almost like mimicking like a redwood forest, uh, how the redwoods share and give off to each other like the necessary uh, uh, water that one might need. Like if one's lacking, they can communicate through their root zones and give off different uh, humidities for the one beside them. And I feel like with the plants, their roots communicate with each other also. Um, I've been told that when you plant in beds, that the roots communicate with each other in a way that they grow more uniform. So the tops will be more uniform as opposed to if they're all in individual pots beside each other. Um, things like that, are it's all cool experiments. This is our first year where we're actually being able to keep track of everything. So we're going to be able to compare at the end of the year how they do. Okay. And Sam, I'm curious what you think about importing soil. Is that soil being imported strictly for the beds? And if so, do you think that there's any benefits to creating your own soil over time in that native space? We just use new soil this year because last year we did grow with at this spot we grew a bunch of smart pots and this year we built beds we needed more soil so we bought a bunch of new stuff but with older soil we like to just if we have older older soil we like to amend it with earthworm castings and back guano and seabird guano stuff like that but uh we definitely like 
using like uh, Route 707 and Biologic Crop Solutions just as like a good base. And you can you can get a good couple runs without even having to amend anything. When you use new soil like that, you really see a, a plant health difference for sure. Yeah, so does a company like that basically put together uh, what they feel are some good components to create a healthy soil to where you can literally just plant and, and go? Right, yeah. A lot of stuff, a lot of brand new soil that you buy, it's, you can plant and go for a couple of rounds and not really have to feed them too much. We experimented yeah. with some of that last year with one garden, barely got fed at all. It was all brand new soil and it still did really, really well. But yeah, they're supposed to be good for eight weeks without anything. Um, mm -hmm. Just as far as just coming good and loaded. And then obviously after that, you don't want to feed them during flower. Another reason why we had to use new soil is just because we haven't had a chance to establish any like long living culture beds or hugels or anything like that. Cause we've had to switch farms every year we've been out here. We've just been bouncing around. Yeah. We haven't um, been at the same spot at all. If this, we had our own homestead, we would for sure use the native soil and amend, obviously get it tested first just to make sure it's all good. But I feel like the more biodiversity you have, the better. This was the first year at uh, the spot I'm at that we've been using teas because there's no electricity there. So it's really hard to like brew a tea. And I found this instant tea recipe that I do now and I've been able to give weekly teas and you can really see a difference in the resin that's just building more of a biodiversity in your soil when you're giving teas like that weekly and amending it like that we did some mixes this year too where we even mixed like the 707 with the biologic and we even got like some fox farm and mixed some of that together we did some straight uh ocean forest but i didn't like that at all so i'm not going to do that again but yeah, just combining different things to see how it might do. Uh, this is the first year that we've really had that. It's just been completely under our control where we can play around and do whatever we want as far as different soils and even picking all the different strains too. I feel like even everything is such a variable. One strain in one soil might do great, but the same strain in a different soil would do terrible. So it's, it's hard to just judge the soil. You know, you have to know what you're growing. And also the climate you're in, you know, how's the climate going to affect your soil? Is it going to dry it out super quick or is it going to make it stay too wet? So th those are some of the things I've been learning the most about is that like coming into just trying to learn how to grow, I would learn, I would read as much as I could in book and I would get overwhelmed with how many different techniques there were. And I would think that like I had to like try all these different things or I had to like I would get overwhelmed that I had to do the best technique or I was messing up, you know, but I feel like just trial and error and just paying attention to where you're at, like your geographic location, your microclimate, and then getting to know strains. So maybe not just switching your strains up every year, maybe spending some time with a strain to get to know it and see how it likes to be fed, what type of climate it needs, if it needs more shade, if it needs cool uh, environments, like some strains love the heat. So that's one thing this year that I've really started to pay attention to is 
how much strains and their environment are a huge factor. Cause I used to just expect that if you had good soil and you're giving them teas and just keeping up with your IPM that you should grow fire. But if you're in the wrong environment or you're growing the wrong strains, it might not be so. Yeah, for sure. We saw that with Skittles. We tried to grow Skittles down in the valley. It was way too hot and it didn't turn out good at all. But we grew Skittles up, up in the mountains some and it did awesome just because it stayed so cool. But like papaya, on the other hand, it loves the heat. It'll stack so hard when it's 100 degrees. It loves it. Yeah, and, and that's something that just basically comes with time and experience because like you guys brought up, you know, there's a lot of microclimates up there. And I'm sure that changes and affects all these genetics. Yeah, and some genetics are specifically bred for that area. So that's what's really cool about being in Mendocino. And that's why I love the farmer's markets because you could go and talk to these breeders and really get to know like what they were doing and what their ideas were behind their genetics and where they're growing at and how you can expect it. Like, is it going to get PM? You know, is it going to chunk? Is it just for flour? Is it greasy? Uh, you know, is it not for hash? Like now, finally, like there's more seed companies coming out that are like based around breeding for hash, like third gen. Uh, the Little Lake Valley Seed Company, Bloom Seed, Harry Palms. He's awesome. But it's really cool to see hash companies breeding, or uh, seed companies breeding specifically for hash. And you kind of, you got to know what you're looking for. Uh, if you see something, like third gen's really cool how they created that uh, chart where they show the mother and, or the cross and the, uh, if it's both going to hash, it's going to be 100%. If one is going to hash and the other one isn't, it could be 50%. But that's kind of how you can base off uh, your selections on what you're going to grow. If you're choosing a cross that are two strains that you don't see anybody washing and usually doesn't wash, then it probably won't wash. But if you pop some seeds of a, a cross that are two dumpers, then chances are even in a pheno hunt, you might get three to 4% just in a random pheno hunt from all this sort of pheno. So you're probably going to find a keeper out of that, but you're not going to take an L. And that's one of the things that uh, is really tough because you want to find new flavors for hash. Like you don't want to just be growing the same old shit. But if you dedicate a big chunk of your grow, of your indoor, of your outdoor, whatever, to new genetics, seed hunts, you could lose a lot of money if you don't find anything that yields because whatever your overhead is, whether it be rent or electricity or whatever, it's not going to care if nothing yields. You know what I'm saying? But there's people out there and you got to do it to find the new stuff. You got to be willing to pop seeds and take the risk of maybe nothing is going to dump. And like you might just have washed like pounds and pounds of flour and get nothing back. And we've been there before. Like you can get ghost washed. You can get, you can put fire material in and get green hash out just because it's not the right genetics. It's not the right trichomes. And so that's why I really gained a huge respect for anybody that, you know, hunts and it has the time and the dedication to, and the patience to pop new things and be willing to take L's because you never know what you're going to find. But that's what we're doing this year. We dedicated a whole greenhouse just to new phenos. So fingers crossed something yields a lot of seeds. <laughs> yeah. And so you guys are obviously growing in greenhouse 
So I'm curious what you think that the sun brings to the resin and why you guys prefer that method. Just from wash and hash, uh, we, we do a lot of collab work with other, other growers. It's mostly indoor when we do the collab. And I've washed the same strain that was outdoor and that was indoor. And the outdoor usually always gets you higher. Maybe a little bit on the darker side, not as light colored, but the over the overall grown, it's got to be from outdoor. Yeah, I would agree. A lot of the time, or it's got to be really good soil ground indoor. Yeah, that's huge. If you're growing indoor, you're growing soil. I feel like that's be the bigger soil. thing. But the greenhouse, I for two reasons. One is the full spectrum of the sun. I love it. I love what it does to the resin. And two is the sustainability. I love not having a bunch of lamps going because that's one of the biggest carbon footprints for the for the earth. Like those indoors, if you got like fifty lamps, ninety nine lamps, that's cool. But that's a lot of electric if you're not on solar panels or anything like that. That's a lot of HVAC. You know, I don't know. We, we grow organic because we care. So I don't want to just ruin the earth because if we don't have an earth, we're not going to be able to enjoy the resin in the first place. So I feel like greenhouses should be like the main move for weed. I don't know. As far as definitely hash production, you can make fire out of greenhouses and then you don't have to have the the carbon footprint or the overhead of the electricity and the HVAC or if you just switch the solar panels. But yeah, that's my favorite for sure. So you brought the term up a couple of times organic what does that mean to you guys it means working with what the earth provided trying to stay with the natural cycle of things not trying to overdo or overcomplicate what's already been done uh just trying to pay attention to the earth and seeing like how nature itself has grown for thousands and thousands of years you know um we don't use any of the bottled nutrients or salt-based nutrients or anything like that um, not just because I truly believe it definitely makes better resin, but just because that's what I believe in now. Uh, I don't eat completely organic. I won't lie about that, but I definitely smoke pretty much all of our own hash. So I, I do have friends that aren't completely organic that grow and I'm not going to talk shit on their hash at all. Like I do know people that have made good hash, good hash from, uh, hydro growers and everything like that but my preference just like sam said how it gets so wet like especially the grease and the resin itself like the melt uh i don't know it's hard to beat the sun in my opinion They're like and a one of the biggest reasons a lot of people moved indoor to begin with was during like the camp days in norcal when they couldn't really grow outdoors so they were going indoors to be more stealth you know so it, it wasn't really a move for the quality in the first place. It was out of necessity. So I feel like as it gets more legal, you'll see just bigger and bigger farms, just big greenhouse operations like there already are. But I feel like you can retain quality in those greenhouses as long as you do it right. If you're a organic soil in a greenhouse, I feel like th there's a misconception that indoor is always better than outdoor, but I feel like that's not true, especially with uh, resin production. 
that there shouldn't be that stigma, especially with greenhouse. I feel like indoor weed is for smoking flowers and outdoor weeds for making hash. Sam, would you say farming is hard work? Uh, not if you love it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely hard work, though, for sure. It's it's no joke. Like you, I put in sixteen-hour days almost daily. <laughs> but yeah. you get a nice little break in the winter time when you don't grow indoors. You get that nice little break, go vacation or something like that. Yeah, a little downtime. And yeah. do you feel like? consumers maybe take the amount of work that goes into growing good resin for granted. Some people appreciate it for sure. But yeah, there's people a lot that of get our stuff. That's the only people that we will even work with is the ones that do appreciate it because we're so small batch that there's not enough to go around to begin with. But if you're going to be disrespectful or if you don't care about what goes into the product or if you're going to be pushy, or if you're going to tell us what you need, things like that, just super disrespectful people out there. Those are the ones that we definitely don't spend any of our time with. But the few people that we do choose to see, they're very respectful when they realize how much goes into it. Some of them have been on the hill themselves. Some of them just have been around it, you know, but I know honestly, before I came out here and I was doing this, I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have when I was just smoking flour and stuff like that being out here on the farm and just those long days definitely grows your appreciation. And when you harvest your own stuff, like, especially us, like we're, we're there trimming our own stuff. Like there's no boss that's just sitting somewhere. Like it's us, like we do everything. And like, there's no better feeling than when you take that first dab, like after you press your single source, like when you get that first dab, Oh, (laughs) <laughs> because you know everything that went into the process, you know, every single day. And there's no days off, especially like when you're pulling depths and stuff like that. Like there's no days off. You might feel shitty one day, but you still got to get up and do everything. Like there's no sick days. So yeah, the dedication to the resin is huge, but it doesn't always feel like work. It never really feels like work because we're so passionate about it and we wouldn't be doing what we do if we weren't passionate about it. Yeah, that's cool, man. That's kind of the impression that I get a lot of people who are either making hash or specifically if they're single sourcing and growing their own material and processing it, like you said, you know, from beginning to end. I'm sure the appreciation grows immensely when you're having to do everything and and go through all the things that could go wrong. Yeah, not to mention that, you know, that's one thing that I didn't even think of. The process that you go through, you don't even know if it's ever going to come to fruition in the end, in the business we're in, you know? Uh, In this traditional market, anything could go wrong to make you lose your crop. So you could put in four months, six months, eight months of continuous labor and hard work every single day just to have something go wrong at the end to lose your crop, whether it be like so many different factors that you can't even be. Yeah, so many different Um, factors. And that that's one thing that a average consumer might not appreciate. Um, a lot of people have a misconception that we're some big company because we have a lot of followers on Instagram, but we're like two or three people, literally two or three people at all times. Um, so like, we're just trying to do the best we can and we don't ever want to get our times. 
And we have never, we're not trying to be any snobby brand that's not trying to serve people. And we're not just going to, we're not judging anybody and deciding who gets our stuff. It's nothing like that. The, the people that get our stuff are our friends that we've known for a long time that make it the easiest on us, you know, because we're literally on the hill all day. Like we wake up and we work on the farm all day and then we come home and wash and squish at night, and package. Like we're doing everything. We're doing, we're planting the clones, taking care of them all year, every single day, pulling the tarps, harvesting all by hand, freezing everything, taking it to the washroom, squishing, washing, packaging all ourselves. So we truly try to get it in different areas so different people can experience it. And we never want to piss anybody off. But it's definitely a lot of hard work that goes into it. So that, it is nice when people uh, like do show an appreciation for it because it makes it all worth it. But honestly, just smoking our own shit makes it worth it. It's cool. It's really cool and I'm glad people appreciate it. But I honestly, I enjoy smoking it so much that I appreciate it enough that if we had to smoke it all to our head, we would, right, Sam? <laughs> oh yeah, amen. <laughs> yeah, so like, sure. sounds like we've, the biggest stashed a lot of good stuff <laughs> that hasn't been able to get seen by anybody, just because we like good good stuff. No, that's cool, man. I mean, that that definitely is. Uh, I would say the biggest reward um, for all that that hard work and and all the risks that you have to take, like you said, in, in different capacities to, to get to that end product, you know? I wanted to talk a little bit about genetics. I've seen some funny things on your pages where like you guys have got stuck your truck and for example, and you, you get towed and the dude who's towing you has, you know, cuts in his car and you guys end up getting genetics. That's up, man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah man. Exactly. Mendo. That's, Mendo. That's why I love living out here. Uh, so, like, moving from Pennsylvania, like, growing, growing is so taboo. Like, you can't even like talk openly about that. I moved to Mendo. You would just be driving down the 101 and see somebody strapped up with like three three thousand gallon water tanks, or you'll see somebody driving by with a bunch of PVC and wood, and you just know they're building hoops. You'll be in Home Depot and you'll be looking at stuff. For and I can't tell you how many times people have come up to us and been like, hey, man, you should get blah, blah, blah instead. It's better for blah, blah, blah. Because they just know you're growing. Everybody knows what you're doing up here. And I love that. But uh, that, that's a really cool thing. The one day I was on our way to our farm and I had a load of soil in my truck. And I had to call to schedule internet because there's no service at the farm. So we literally couldn't even talk to anybody all day while we were working. So I was about to lose service. So I pulled off in this driveway just to finish the phone call. And while I'm waiting in the driveway, whoever lived there pulls in and I'm like, crap. So he comes up to my car and I thought he was going to yell at me because like, you don't, you shouldn't be in people's driveway in Mendo. So he comes up to the window and I open it up. He's like, Hey man, you got any pounds? And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And I'm, I'm on the phone with the internet guy. I'm like, hold on. So I get off the phone with the internet guy and I walk over and I'm like, Hey, I don't have any pounds right now because it's a drought and we freeze everything. And he was like, Oh, well, do you need any clones? And I was like, hell yeah, I need some clones. <laughs> so this random dude, I was just in his driveway. He invited me into his shop and uh, he took, he takes me out back and he has like three or four greenhouses, just full starts. <laughs> and it's so funny because I believe in the law of attraction and literally we were like short on genetics and we we're just grabbing like all the clean hash genetics that we could find. And it's scarce. Like um, I made plans with probably 
four out of five people I made plans with to get cuts uh, bailed on me or had something came up at the last second. So I had like two homies that gave us most of our cuts. And then I had just, I needed a little bit more to fill out a greenhouse. And this guy just saved me out of nowhere. It was such the law of attraction. And I walked out back and we ended up getting like a bunch of OZ Kush from him. And then uh, shout out third gen. And then we got, to, we got like some old stuff. I don't know what it's going to do, but he got, he had this stuff called the station. And this is one of the coolest things about Mendo is just like, you never know what the hell you're going to find in a backyard or just running into people. And he, and cause we tore and we were making hash and he's like, if you're making hash, you got to take this shit called the station. And I, I, I still don't even know what it is. He said, it's like 20 different types of OG crossed to each other. And then it's crossed to like some crazy shit, like witch's breath or wolf's mane or something nuts and he said this stuff is a hash monster so we took like 12 of those and we took like some pineapple upside down cake just to try like his different genetics but yeah stuff like that in mendo happens all the time just because it's like it's such a part of the community and i think that's what's really cool about it too like you don't really have to hide what you're doing um some people will still judge you for it but it's nothing like the east coast like you can right. just kind of be ourselves because we love weed and we love hash, you know? So just being able to be ourselves and not have to hide it as much has alleviated like a lot of anxiety and stress, even though it's still there, obviously, but big difference living in Mendo than the East coast. Yeah, I'm sure it's a very different world and, and mentality, and, but that's cool to be able to like come across random people who are holding you know, genetics that that might differentiate you from another hash maker down the line or something, you know? Yeah, it's awesome. And one thing that kind of sucks is like hash makers, just like anybody, like obviously they don't want to share their shit. And I wouldn't like, I'm kind of different, like where I'll give my homies all of our cuts. Like I don't really care, but a lot of hash makers, nobody wants to share. And one person that was super cool with us uh, was T. Beasel. Um, Little Lake Valley Seed Co. I hit him up through an email just to buy some seeds because he was one of those ha- uh, seed companies that are based uh, around hash genetics. And I met him at like the local grocery store, first time ever, and just to buy some seeds that I was interested in for the next season. He he has a bunch of crazy crosses. Anything that hash, he crossed with Fofana, which is his banana OG heirloom cross. And first time ever meeting the guy. He invited me back to his house and ends up giving me like three of his own cuts of like a bunch of hash genetics. You can't even get the seeds for anymore because they're so old and sold out that you can't get them. Like he gave me like a Kush sorbet I know from Seed Junkie and he gave me like a little Lake Valley purple. But I thought that was really cool because in a community where like there's a lot of competition obviously between hash makers and a lot of people see each other as competition instead of working together, which is weird because we're all small batch. Like all these hash makers that are creating fire are small batch. You can't really just be some huge company and putting out fire. It's hard to do. It's hard to, it's hard to retain the quality. So if we would all find a way to work together or create some hash, like hash <laughs> union or hash conglomerate instead of like competing against each other, or uh, it would be awesome. But like he was one person that had absolutely no ego and shared just so many genetics with us just for no reason. I'm super grateful for that. But that, that, that's one thing that's just awesome about Mendo again, is just running into people that are willing to share genetics 
his philosophy was he wants to share it and get it in his friend's hands because he thinks it's better to share things and more people to experience it and work with it. Because the more and more people work with it and learn, the more we can share our knowledge with each other. And we're just all helping each other. Whereas right. if you're just keeping something for yourself, it's hard for anybody else to learn from it. If you're not sharing your experience, it's hard for anybody else to learn from it. So I really respect him for helping us out and just kind of giving me that wisdom of like, just it's like pay it forward, but it's also, it's just like sharing the knowledge will help everybody. I totally agree. And I mean, that's easy for me to say because, you know, I don't have a stable of genetics to guard or, or take care of, but I can see that, man. I mean, you know, it, we're only around here so long, so we can only do so much with genetics, right? So passing that along to other people and, and maybe not losing some cool lines and some cool uh, genetic variations and plants is a good thing. Yeah, that was exactly his point. Like, it's not worth losing something over just trying to keep it all to yourself then nobody will get to enjoy it. And then what's the point of any of this if nobody's enjoying what we do, you know? That makes no sense. If you lose something over holding on to it so tightly that nobody can experience it again or get to enjoy it. So, yeah, that really changed the way I look at it because that's what, like, I'm prepared to give any of my homies that grow, like, all of our good cuts because, like, I want everybody growing the fire that's going to yield because then they're going to make money and then more people are going to get to grow our smoke and consume the good resin. So in the end, everybody is helping everybody and everybody's going to be happy. Yeah, it's a lot of work keeping genetics too. Sure. You need, a, you, need a, you need a proper setup, proper mom room. Yeah, that's a year-round job, just keeping your genetics and, and then having enough cuts the next year to fill up what you want with your cuts, you know? It's so much work. Just the pheno hunting alone, keeping the cuts of the phenos and then then test washing everything to see what's worth even keeping and then momming them out to the point where you can actually put it in production enough to get people to experience it. Cause you know, it's fire. It's a huge process. So talk to me about some of the genetics you guys are running right now. Chem D, uh, blue Mosa, which is, uh, blue cookies and mimosa cross. We love Blumosa. That's what we're most stoked on for this year. It's so awesome. My new favorite thing to grow. It's kind of like a blue Powerade, but like once it cures, it's crazy. It just tastes... It's real creamy. It's 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 pretty good. (laughs) And it yields great. And it's doing awesome under the sun. Like... Yeah. It loves the sun. Just amazing. What else do we have going? We got some biscotti. Scotty's wedding wedding pie wedding number pie, six. Ice cream cake. Um, banana OG. Banana OG, Ozzy Kush. Um, Skittle cake. Strawberry banana. Yeah. Well, some modified grapes. Modified grapes. Sun cake. A little bit of Which GMO. Sunset sherbet wedding cake. GMO. Fatso. Fatso's. Granimals. Lots of granimals. And in your experimental tent? In the experimental tent, oh, we got dude. some black garlic <laughs> Skittles. We got some hash plant Skittles. Purple we got Skittles. <laughs> cheese Skittles. All kinds of different Skittle crosses. Strawberry pie from Bloom. 
Amarillo uh, from Symbiotic. It's this. It could be a hitter. It could be really good. A lot. A lot but of Amarillo this year. Yeah, so Lots from Symbiotic. Yeah, I, I definitely have seen people rocking their gear as well. And I think they kill it themselves with their own genetics. But from your experience, what would you guys say makes a good hash plant? Fat, bulbous, resin head. If if you can touch it and it feels a little bit sandy, or if you like, get some little bit of hash on your hand or a little bit of trichomes on your hand, and you press it and you look real close, and if they, you see like a string, it's usually a good. You usually want to stay stay away from like the real, real greasy ones. Like if you touch it and it feels like super wet, it's not like tacky. Those usually don't do too well. You yeah, like the, lemon tree. Lemon tree sucks. Tacky, sandy resin. Yeah, and so going back to what we were talking about earlier about possibly sacrificing some biomass for more resin, do you feel that that's, I guess, tied into each other to where if the plant is using maybe less energy to focus on creating a bulk, it's creating more resin or has the ability to? I definitely thought that because some of the best plants that we've had have been small plants that we just started late in the year and they just had a short life cycle and they finished small and they had amazing resin. So that my first idea was, does that mean that if you grow a full-term monster, even though it might be an eight pounder, will the resin output be less on it? And why would it be less? Would it be less because it has to cover more surface area? Like there's so much surface area of this huge plant. Can it not put out that uh, intensity of resin Mm -hmm. as opposed to a small plant that has just a short, healthy life cycle? Can it just bust out like incredible amounts of resin? So I have thought the same thing, but we've never ran a controlled test kind of side by side of the same strain or anything to see um, but honestly, if I had to just say, like, if I had to guess, I would say that you probably get a, a higher quality resin output from a shorter, a shorter life cycle plant and a smaller plant as opposed to a huge monster. Would you agree, Sam? Yeah, I feel the same way, but honestly, I, I can't really say that I know because I haven't really grown the same strain as a monster or as just like a depth greenhouse plant, you know, we've ran full term monsters, um, that were fire material and I've seen it from other people. Definitely. Yeah. So again, going back to this idea of like, if you guys had a steady place that you could be at, like we were talking about earlier, creating, you know, native soil beds and and whatnot, are these the types of things that you would want to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's anything goal. that can make us improve. You know, we're always about improving. I, I love that just for the the sole purpose of being able to harvest in the middle of the summer and not waiting all year because that's just a long investment and it's a lot of work. So I do still love depths, which are usually in beds. But I would I would definitely love a property to just uh, do full terms year after year with the same soil. Right. 
Now, when it comes to pulling your plants, you mentioned something kind of interesting earlier where you said you typically take them down at night. Yeah. Is there a specific reason for that? Uh, it's cooler. I don't really, I feel like the resin is, a, I don't know. It doesn't, it's not exposed to, so once you cut it off the plant, it's kind of like killing the plant, you know? Right. killing that branch and if it's really hot out that could really that could affect the resin at some point i'm not i don't really know if it really does or not but and it's nicer to work when it's cooler it gets hot out here yeah and our workload has been so much in the past that we have to do all the farm work all day like tending to all the plants and then literally the only time we've had to harvest was at night so we'll pull like 18 hour days just working all day on the farm and then at night harvesting and freezing and then sleeping for like four to six hours and then doing it all again. So that was kind of like out of necessity. Um, I've also heard harvesting at night is the best for like the resin because it's like the farthest away from when they got fed or something or something about the sugar content in the buds. I'm not positive, but we've honestly just done it out of necessity and because of it stays cooler at night. Yeah. And I mean, if it's work for you guys, that's cool. And I'm curious when you decide that the trichomes are ready to be pulled. We let our first uh, bed this year go long, like to the point where the crystals were getting amber because we're not concerned with the color of the resin as much as we want something that's going to get you stoned. Like I want to be high when I take a dab and I feel like you get a better effect when you let it go later, even though you may be sacrificing a lighter shade a little bit. Whereas obviously indoor growers are obviously going to usually pull earlier for the fact of getting in more runs and it will tend to be lighter resin, but I feel like you'll get a better taste and definitely a harder hitting high if you let it go longer. So this year we're definitely concentrating on taking everything to its peak and not like mm -hmm. in the past, we've been concerned with it being dark, but I don't care if the heads get a little bit amber this year, as long as the resin is getting you really high when you dab it, but it everything has not it's been, uh, turning out all clarity wise. Amazing. Like you can read, uh, you can read through the resin and a piece of parchment. So even though we've taken it later than the past, like we used to try to stay around eight weeks for most strains. Like we went 64 to like 68 days on our first harvest this year. And it barely affected the, the shade of the color at all. And it's a hard hitting high, very sedative. The yield was really good too. It yielded really good. Yeah. So not only did the yield improve, but it sounds like the intensity. Oh yeah. yeah it'll get you started. It'll get you real stunned. And the flavor profile is amazing. I was just going to say, so you guys are not believers in when the trichome is cloudy, it's at its, it's peak. It's too late. Yeah. And once it gets past that point, it's a bad thing or it's a degradation. Oh, yeah, definitely. But we don't, we're just talking about chopping early. We don't really like to chop early we want to so let it get right. to its peak and, and then chop it 
Gotcha. So by early, you mean like where maybe a lot of them are quote unquote clear with some milkiness, let's say to it, or some opaqueness to it. But yeah, you guys, we want them all to be milky. Okay. Yeah. But all past that point, then. you don't feel it's worth going past that point? I Not, feel like you might risk the, the head yeah, bursting. Yeah, more risk on getting mold and other problems the later you go. That's all I've seen with it. Okay, yeah. And, you know, that brings up an interesting point because you brought up IPM earlier. What does your regimen consist of? Dr. Zymes. That's our true. We hold true to Dr. Zymes with warm water. That's the tip. That's my tip. Warm water with the Dr. Zymes makes it work a lot better. And then we've tried like some pure crop one this year. Yeah, pure crop um, one is pretty nice. Some flying skull, nuclear flying skull. If we yeah, ever have all, like a problem with like butt mites or anything like that, that usually works really well to get rid of them. It's all Omri listed. And then uh, if they're in veg, we might use sulfur. Yeah, sulfur and veg. That That's true. It's cheap. It It really kills pretty much everything. Yeah, but not in flour. No, no. no, never in flour. Never. Never. You not can even. use uh, Dr. Zymes through flour. Yeah, all the way up but to the end. Obviously, you want to quit. Like You don't want to be spraying late in the flour. Um, we, we've even used predator mites, but I feel like if you just keep up with your like every four-day spray, you start with clean plants. And healthy plants, obviously, healthy plants just want to attract bugs. I feel like bugs are attracted to plants that uh, aren't doing as well. So just keeping up total plant health is huge. Right. You know, everyone has their preferences. Some people prefer rosin. Some people prefer resin. Some people like a certain consistency of rosin. Thankfully, as a hash maker, no matter what you're trying to achieve, Rosin Evolution can help you get there. Visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram, rosinevolution100. Even if you're a rosin-only person, unless you're pressing flour, you'll still need to isolate the resin. And for that, you'll need a good filtration system, aka wash bags. Rosin Evolution makes their full mesh wash bags out of the same food grade material that their screens are made out of. Rosin Evolution screens are trusted by hash makers to be accurate, meaning that their bags are also accurate. Again, their design is full mesh, making them lightweight and flexible. It gives you a large surface area for seeding water and resin, reducing the strain that you put at the bottom of the bag, and more importantly, to reduce the strain on your back. The price is literally unbeatable. If you want to save an additional 5%, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710 altogether. THI710 saves you 5% with Rosin Evolution. You've heard it on here time and time again. If your starting material isn't fire, there's no bag that can make that better. But with some proper starting material, you don't need the fanciest bag in the world to make great hash or rosin. Just solid, accurate bags, which is what Rosin Evolution brings you. Again, save 5% on your entire order by using the letters THI, the number 710 altogether at rosinevolution.com. 
Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's get a little bit into the actual hash and, and rosin. So you told me before we started talking that you guys used to both work everything. And now you've kind of split it to where Sam takes care of the washing and Dustin, you take care of the pressing. Why did that come to be? Just easier for people to have their specialized jobs, especially because we only have like a two or three person crew most of the time. So instead of us all trying to do everything, we set it up in a way that Sam can be washing. I can be squishing at the same time. And every night we can be putting out a new flavor and packaging and just increasing production. Uh, Cause we're still on the farm every day. Like we can't just take days off of the farm and just concentrate on hash. I wish we could. And I wish we had like a larger team so that we could have just dedicated hashers like 24 seven. But right now we still have to concentrate on growing good resin on the farm. So it's usually just being on the farm all day. And then we come home and Sam washes and I squish and then we both package. Yeah. And you know, this is something that seems to get brought up a lot online and I'm just going to kind of stack on and ask why is it that you guys seem to press almost everything or is that a misconception? No, it's definitely not a misconception. We prefer to press absolutely everything. And it's because we like to smoke rosin. That's honestly, it's the guiding force and why we even started this brand was because we are spending so much money buying fucking Skittles and all the third gens hash at the dispo that we were like, damn, we need to make some of our own stuff because like we're just spending outrageous amounts of money. So we just wanted to smoke our own stuff. So that was half the reason why we started it. Yeah, so it's more of a personal preference, would you say? 100%. Yeah, 100%. I like to smoke rosin a lot better. Than and all of our uh, our market is entirely rosin, like entirely. And we can't even meet our market demand now. So it's just easier to just keep everything like that for now. I don't have, I love melt. Obviously, you need the melt to squish. Uh, hash. Ken Wall, I bought hash off of them before we ever made anything. And that's what made me really appreciate it all. But as far as like now, we just prefer to smoke raws. And so we just squish everything so we can smoke it. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, since you are consumers and you were consumers before actually growing your own product as well, do you feel like rosin is just easier for people to smoke? Or what is, what is it about it that makes you prefer it over the resin? Uh, yeah, less cleanup. Um, some aspects taste better, I think, because if you do a hot melt dab, it's going to taste terrible. But if you do a hot rosin dab, it's not that bad. And um, uh, I feel like you may be able to achieve uh, a different taste profile by when you let the rosin cure than you may ever get from the melt i know some people are like curing their melt now and like cold curing it and whipping it so it looks just like rosin so maybe that does change the taste profile of the melt but as far as rosin you can for sure taste the difference from the fresh pressed state to a cured state no doubt and i think that's pretty cool because you can enhance the flavor and maybe experience it in a way you would have never even gotten from the the hash. 
but for sure it's easier as far as just clean up. It's easier as far as transportation, which is the biggest thing. Like if you have to go anywhere throughout the day and you're taking melt, it's going to grease up. If it's going to last for a couple of days and you grease it up on the first day, you might be losing quality. Whereas the rosin might hold up better outside for a couple of days. Um, all of those go into play, but yeah, the biggest thing is I feel like the rosin is easier for the general consumer and that's why it's kind of overtaking like the resin and like how you talked about like the appreciation that the consumer has for things. I feel like they might not appreciate the resin as much because it is really hard to create a pure six star, great melting product, you know? So I don't know, maybe if more people appreciated that, there'd be more of a demand for it. But right now all the demand seems to be for rosin. Yeah, I can totally see that, man. And like you said, I think the difficulty of making, you know, uh, and obviously the rating systems are su subjective themselves, but making like a six-star hash is so difficult that it takes a certain maybe person to appreciate it as well. And the rosin just seems to be more like plug and play or kind of easier. But I wonder if you guys feel at all that rosin can obscure the fact that resin isn't as good as it may be made out to be. Um, yeah, it's just, it's hard to find really true six star resin. You know, when you get that, you know that it's, it's the fire, but it doesn't really, doesn't come around that often and it's hard to make and you have to really grow you have to grow it perfectly it's got to be grown perfectly for you to really get some good six star melt and it all has to be transported perfectly to whoever gets it all the way down the line that's the biggest pain in the ass it has to be on dry ice from the hash producer to whoever he drops it with that guy has to take it on dry ice to wherever he's going to put it in his freezer and then anybody he drops it to if it's not on dry ice, it's going to immediately start losing the quality. And then you might have consumers complaining about a product because it changed, obviously, because it wasn't on dry ice or it wasn't refrigerated. Whereas if you were just using rosin, they might not even notice a difference between the transportation stages. It's sad. And obviously, you want to try to ensure everything gets transported properly. But when anything leaves our hands, just like any other company, and kids start doing it, anything they would with it, especially if they're taking it like far distances, it's going to probably not be refrigerated and it's probably going to lose quality. Like I've definitely had people DM us with pictures of rosin that was super dark. And it was no, nothing like how we released it. And they're like, is it supposed to look like this? It doesn't look like how it does on your page. And then I asked them where they're at and they're on the East coast or they're in the UK. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's obviously what happened, man. It got aerated for however many days. It's definitely going to start to lose its quality. So with melt, I feel like that may be one of the biggest things too, is just the transportation factor. Yeah, just maintaining the kind of integrity or the stability of the resin. And by quality, when you say like loss of quality in traveling, would you more specifically refer to that as like a loss of terpenes? Probably. Like it depends how good your seal is on your jar, but 
the heat alone is definitely going to change the makeup of the product. So if you don't have true six star to begin with, then it doesn't turn to water. It's just going to turn to cake. Like, yeah, if so, it's not dried properly too, it has to be dried properly or else you're going to get caked. That sucks when milk cakes. I hate that shit. <laughs> but, uh, as far as like people losing an appreciation for the resin because of rosin, I feel like it could go both ways because if, if they just assume that the rosin is better, that, that could suck because obviously we all know that the six star is like the pinnacle, like it doesn't get any better. But if they get into rosin and that piques their interest on solventless enough to get them into the six star, then that could be a good thing. And then, then rosin wouldn't be a bad thing for the solventless and it wouldn't take away from the resin if people use it as like kind of a, uh, introductory level or, you, you know, it, so I could see it both ways for sure. It could make you lose your appreciation if you just never even try it, or it could pique your interest enough to make you want to try it. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And yeah, I, I didn't mean that, I guess, um, I see rosin as being inferior. I just wonder if in a way it can make resin that wasn't as good seem better when you rosin it. Is it easier to make something seem better than it is going from resin to rosin? And like, would a a consumer be educated enough or their palate be sophisticated enough to be able to, to discern that? Oh, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. So you might be able to change what it looks like, but as soon as you try something, you'll probably be able to tell if it's good or not. Just like bag appeal with packs. There's some flower packs that look awesome, but then you smoke them and the ash will burn dark and it'll be a harsh taste. And I feel like the same can definitely be true with uh, rosin, especially the people that do microwave tech or make like the solventless diamonds like i remember at ego clash one of the craziest entries was this jar of solventless diamonds and they were the biggest like canary diamonds i've ever seen for solventless like they look like some bho live resin diamonds and it was a super clear terp sauce and as soon as i saw the jar i was like holy shit this stuff is gonna win but then as soon as i dabbed it it just tasted burnt because of the process that it has to go through to get that you know so right. I and every other hash maker there immediately knew like this shit looks awesome, but it sucks. And that, that entry didn't place. So it didn't suck. I'm not, I'm not trying to talk shit, but like, honestly, like you could taste the burnt factor immediately. So that compared to like everybody's 90U that they let cure, it was just, it, it stood out like a sore thumb, you know? But yeah, you, you could definitely to the maybe to somebody that really doesn't know what they're looking for and their taste, you could probably sell them a rosin that came from an inferior resin and they'd be happy. I could see that happening. But to anybody that's like a true smoker, that's like buying the hash rosin because they're about that. Like you should be able to tell in the taste. Yeah. And you know, you brought up an interesting point with the 90 U Sam, since you're kind of the main washer, I'm curious what your setup is because before we started talking you said you don't really you know have anything out of this world that you're doing but i'm curious since everything is going to rosin and that's already predetermined what's your bag collecting 
like? So I collect all the big, big stuff, 220, 180, 150. I collect all that. But then I just pull the 70 bag and I collect 70 to 120 or 70 to 149 it'd be. And then I just, I collect the 40 and put that up separate. So usually our, our rosin is 70 through 149. But every once in a while, I'll pull the 90 just to, if I want to try to make some melt or something, every once in a while. But it's got to be, you don't see it often because it's got to be like perfect. I, it has to be really super clean, easy to clean off your nail, you know, 10 out of 10. Right. And I guess at what point would you make that decision in those rare cases where you do decide to pull the 90? Do you know before uh, it goes into the wash? Yeah, if some like if it's something single source, and I know like it's everything was perfect with that grow. There shouldn't be much dust on it at all. It's you know, I'll try and pull the ninety. Um, or if like if it's a new strain that I haven't tried, that I don't know if it'll pull six star or not. I'll I'll pull the ninety. But uh, most of the time, I'm just pulling the 70 just because we usually just raws and everything. And when I got a lot of stuff to wash, and it's all about freeze dryer space, too. I, I want to try to use, this, use my freeze dryer tray space uh, as uh, well as possible so I can fit as much hash, you know, per run. Or I can do a couple runs and uh, fill a whole freeze dryer like that. Because if right. I, if I pull if I pull like the ninety, it's just it's using up tray space. Really, if we're just going to rosin it anyway. And what's that consistency that you like going from the bags to the trays, the freeze dryer trays? It's super wet. No, no, I like to get it pretty dry. But not too dry where it's like in big, super big clumps. You know, it has to be wet enough where I like to like tap the bottom of the tray and try to get it nice and spread out evenly. Spreading it out evenly is pretty crucial to for it to dry on time. Okay, and so you mentioned that the 40 gets separated. Does that yep. become its own product? It depends. Usually it goes to like edibles. But if it's really fire, we'll release it. Right. Just mark, mark the 40U on the sticker. We haven't really done it. We've only done it a few times. And yeah, I'm, curi I'm curious, are you hand stirring or are you machine washing? Machine washing. And what's your take on your wash cycles? How many do you typically do? Uh, it all really depends on what I'm washing. So if I'm doing like blue mosa or like GMO, something I know that's gonna dump, I do. I'll do a, sh a short first spin, do like an eight or nine minute first spin, and then I'll do like a twelve to twelve to fifteen minute, three, four, five. Okay. Depending on if it's really dumping, I'll hit a fifteen each spin. But if if it's and I, if I see that a lot of green is coming through, I'll, I won't take it as long. 
So you can usually tell how long you can take it by like the particulate that's coming through. If you're seeing a lot of green, then you just want to really dial it down and not take it as long. But if there's no green going and the resin's not getting any darker, I like to take it up up to 15 minutes, no longer than 15 minutes. Though. And are each of those, I guess, cycles or pools separate products, you know, from that, that 70 to the 149? First wash versus... 70 to 149, like you said, second through fifth or something like that? Yeah, which is usually how I, I'll usually separate. I separate the first and the second, and then I usually put the three to five together. I don't, I don't ever really go past five washes unless it's like GMO and it's really dumping and it's not changing color at all. Then I'm like a six, but usually I only, I only take a four or five. But yeah, that that all gets clumped together. Three to three to five, and then the one and two will get separated. Okay, and you know, recently I've seen various people online comment on this idea of a fuller spectrum of cannabinoids in a quote unquote full spectrum rosin compared to, for example, doing a ninety U rosin. Do you agree with that? Just on experience Hell yeah. alone. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. But like the 40, I don't know, the 40 U in my opinion, just sometimes it's unnecessary to be in there. Sometimes doesn't make it, sometimes doesn't make it taste better, you know, and sometimes it makes it darker. So that's why we usually take it out. So what is full spectrum for you? Uh, full spec to me would be 40 to 40 the whole way up. If it's a true full spec, you got to get every, everything. Ours is like a mixed, mixed micron. Uh, yeah, ours would be a mixed micron, but some people would call it full spec just because they're ignorant and they would assume just because it's not a 90U, it's full spec. So some people have definitely said we're a full spec company, but no, it's a mixed micron because it supplies, in our opinion, the best flavor profile to combine those together. Right. You know, that's one of the things that always kind of trips me out about water hash is that it has the unique ability to separate trichomes by their size and even by their type as opposed to other methods of extractions. And I'm curious, like what you guys think about that in the sense of, do you think it's good to separate trichomes and, and have these trichomes that some people consider better? And like you said, the 40 U's are not considered as good because it might affect the taste or the color, even though it might contribute some cannabinoids to it if you separate those and leave them out like the 40u or the 150u like the the higher uh, ranges you're going to get the the better product that we're squishing which is the 70 to 149u but by having those 40us and the 150 180s if there's a consumer that wants to smoke solventless but doesn't have the same budget to smoke the the cream of the crop as some would say it's a good alternative for sure because like I won't lie, I smoke R4U like I'll, most of the time because we can't smoke all of our best shit. Like we have to let other people, you know? Right. And so uh, I have no, like I'm not mad every day smoking 40U at all. So especially if somebody's on a budget, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't expect them to be mad about being able to smoke solventless hash for a, a, a cheaper rate at, at certain microns. 
So I think that that that's a cool alternative to it. And then edibles too, for anything that's like super dark where people wouldn't even want to smoke it. You can have some clean hash rolls and edibles. And honestly, like some of the best edibles I've ever had in my life have been made with hash rolls and with our hash rolls and like um, the pop tarts and everything we had with super chill. I remember just having some of the craziest dreams of my life after eating some of those things and falling asleep. And unlike any other edible and, and no sick feeling whatsoever, like how you sometimes used to get, like, I can't imagine back in the prop two fifteen days, like what all those edibles, I remember like going to like a hemp con and they had like the THC scissor there. Like back when it was first becoming a thing, like the double cups, but you weren't drinking lean, you were drinking scissors. So everybody in the building would have a double cup looking all cool, like Paul Wall. But this shit was supposed to be like one or 2,000 milligrams. And I remember drinking like two or three cups and I was fine. And I was like, I don't know what they're putting in this shit, but I don't think it's what they say. But these edibles with hash rosin, man, it said, uh, what was it, Sam? 200 milligrams? Yeah, those Pop-Tarts, they were, they were heavy. Whew. Only and two. Boy. I mean, you would think, some people think 200 a lot. Some people think 200 is not a lot. But right. boy, they smacked. Yeah, for a couple kids that take dabs all day, like these ads. Yeah, we smoke a lot. It really, I was surprised. Yeah, yeah. that's a cool aspect for the fuller microns because you can make stuff like that, like the edibles, even tinctures, solvonics tinctures. I don't have as much experience with that, but I'd love to start uh, learning more. And uh, so, yeah, I, I love using the entire spectrum, whether it's for smoking or eating or whatever. I think it's great. Just maybe, maybe not all mixed together. Yeah, not all mixed together. Yeah, that's cool. I always, I always like to see people's take on that. So, Dustin, since you're doing the rosin, uh, you're using low template for your pressing, and that's one of the people that we rep on the show, and I've heard great things about them, which is part of the reason that we do rep them on the show. I'm curious what you like about their presses. I like the low templates. I got into them because of Ken Wall, honestly. They're affordable. Um, anybody that's entry level can grab one. They're super easy to use. I don't like pneumatic presses. I like being able to feel how I'm pressing. Um, I like being able to feel the back of the hash so I prevent blowouts. I like my strawberry red plates. I like being able to choose the color of the plates. You can really reflect your personality. Low templates. Uh, I've never had any... Uh, like customer service with them because nothing has ever gone wrong like with my press ever so i've never had to hit them up for anything so i can't say um anything as far as that but they make a great press because i've never had a problem with it yeah that's cool and i wanted to talk with you a little bit about pressure you know as a non-hash maker you hear people always asking about pressure and time how much pressure do you need and is what is being offered now by some press companies kind of overkill? Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely overkill snake oil salesman, you know, like any industry people will all try to tell you, you need this product, but sometimes you can't reinvent the wheel. Like some things you don't need to take to a ridiculous level. Like we, I hand like hand pump everything with our low temp plates. It's just in a, uh, Harbor freight press. And I have the tabletop press as well. Like the portable one you can kind of take anywhere, 
And that's kind of like my backup or if I ever have to go someplace and press, but I don't use that one as much. I'm sorry. I forgot what the question was. I just ripped that dab and got stoned. <laughs> no, you're good, man. I was just asking uh, about pressure and if it's sometimes, you know. Oh, overkill. Yeah, 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 definitely overkill. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, just like organic growing, how you're not trying to overcomplicate the process. Yeah, just keeping it simple. All right, cool. And since you are the one doing the pressing, talk to me a little bit about kind of your prep. So the prep work, I take all the hash and I let it grease up a little bit to where it's like uh, magic sand, you know, like that foldable kind of kind of like uh, Play-Doh sand. And uh, I create bricks of that. And I try to keep it between like um, 28 to 30 grams is kind of like my sweet spot. But you can go up to like 40. You can go up to 50. I used to do big presses, but some strains butter up if you have too much in the press. If you're not getting them off the plates quick enough, they'll butter on the press. So I I, I got away from doing the big presses. So now I stick to around 28 to 30 grams. Um, I get them all greased up and I form them into squares. And then I use Hash Depot bags, the three by six inch, 37U micron. And I just put the bricks in and I try to have them all the relative same shape and uniform just so like when the press goes down, not all the rosin has to come from one side of the bag because then it might blow out. Okay. And then I put it in the first bag and fold it over. And then I slide that bag into another hash depot bag, same exact three by six. And I make sure that the seams are opposite of each other. So I slide that into the other one and fold that over. So it's a double bag. And then I use the rosin evolution parchment paper that's pre-cut. And you can get the 35 pound or the 55 pound. The 55 pound is a little bit thicker. Like you're never going to fucking blow that shit out. The, the 35 pound will get the job done for sure. And uh, I just fold that up with a fold so that when I squish it, it'll all come out the front. And that's pretty much the, the, the process for that. Okay, yeah, so you're trying to, like you said, keep keep the re- resin or I guess at this point rosin from being on the plates too long. So that's part of the reason that you're going with the smaller batches. Yeah, for sure. Some strains um, will just be so stable it doesn't matter. You could press 50 grams. You could put as much will fit in the bags and uh, it'll all come off the press. And even if it sits on the press, it'll stay stable and it'll come off. But some strains, like if it sits in there too long, it'll just butter literally right on the press. And so with that butter, like that butter, sometimes you can't just whip up into like a wet butter. Like that'll dry up into a dry butter, which like nobody really likes. Like it just looks like it's already like a deteriorated uh, consistency. Even if it hasn't deteriorated, it just kind of looks like it if it's dry. So I try to avoid those. Yeah, so I'm curious if there's a standout stable one, one that you could press 100 grams of that would still be fine. Cookies and cream. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We don't grow it anymore, but CNC. That's why everybody grows it. Fuck yeah. CNC, 
it's the easiest strain to grow and it's the easiest resin to make six star like cnc you could throw in your backyard and not water for eight weeks and then, then pull six star from it like you could <laughs> shake it and the six star would just fall in a jar like cnc is the easiest plant we've ever grown that 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 shit was awesome but it didn't have like enough of a flavor profile to keep around blue mosa is pretty damn stable uh our single source stuff i think i think uh it's definitely genetics that play a, a role in what stays stable, but I think even more so it's the grow because um, soil grown seems to like it goes back and forth because it, it comes down to the genetics though, Sam, because like when we grow the Skittles, even though uh, it's soil grown, it, it's going to be straight wet. But then this Blumosa we just grew, I've had, try, I've been trying to cold cure it for the past six days at room temp cure. I guess, as you guys said, a room temp cure at 74 degrees it has literally not buttered up whatsoever for like a week. And so some strains, I feel like it more comes down to the genetics than the growing conditions. Because I used to think it was uh, soil versus like cocoa and then salt versus organic. But as far as like stability goes, I don't know. I feel like it might be more genetics now. Okay, interesting. And speaking about consistencies, are you guys, it looks like from afar, mostly going with the fresh press? Yeah, we tend to just because if we give people it as fresh press, we would hope that they would know that if they just let it start to cure themselves, that they can whip it into that wet consistency. But if we whip everything and give it out all cured, then um, people don't really get to see what it looked like at first. And I love being able to show people like a clear clarity gram. Um, I feel like it just shows almost like a white ash. A white ash is an indication of good flower and clean flower. I feel like a clean clarity resin is an indication of a clean grow. But I do love uh, curing also just because the it brings out the flavor profile immensely. Yeah, yeah. tastes a lot different. So like something fresh pressed. Compared to it, cured tastes totally different. And I think it's cool that you get to taste both those things. You know, you're not, you don't just get to taste the cured side. Maybe you might like it better, fresh press, make taste better you that way. Yeah, would you say there's any, I guess maybe let's call them downfalls to the fresh press? Uh, just sometimes you want it. You don't like the fresh fresh flavor, and you like it better cured. That's the only thing I would only thing I would think of. Or if it is some resin that you know is gonna butter dry, if you uh, give it out as the fresh press, if it ever gets transported or anything without being refrigerated, it could just turn into the dry butter, and somebody might think uh, that it was like that to begin with. Um, that could be the only downfall. Okay. And are you, I guess, getting into the cold cure or batter type consistency at all? Yeah, we definitely are. Um, that's what we're experimenting with a lot. That's like a, what I was saying about our blue mosa. Uh, we just harvested it and I immediately put some into a jar to see how it would cold cure. But I've been waiting like six days at this point and it's just not buttering on me. So that shows how stable it is. And I haven't added any heat to it. Like if I added heat to it or put it like out in the sun or anything like that, I'm sure it would butter quicker. Sam had a jar of the same single source that he let 
100 degree weather for yes. a day and a half. It finally buttered up with a lot of whipping, but it stayed wet. I was happy about that. It got real nice and soft and moist. And it nice. completely changed the taste profile of it. Like it turned it into a way more like a blueberry cream flavored. It's so interesting to see the terps change uh, from resin to rosin and then within the different rosin kind of texts and see how it kind of either becomes truer to, to the, that plant's, I don't know what you want to call it, original terpene profile or if it kind of becomes its own thing, you know? Yeah, one of my favorite things to see is taking a jar out as fresh press and then just keeping it with me throughout like a day or two of working and it curing. And then I love it when it turns into like that sugar consistency, like almost like granular sand diamondy. Uh, that to me is just one of my favorite consistencies. Um, and then you can obviously whip it from there into a wet batter, but kind of that in-between stage of the fresh press to the cure. I love that. And that's an experience. Like if you get it, as, that's why I like giving it out as fresh press because then people can get to experience that cure. It's pretty cool. It's, it's like, it goes hand in hand with the entire thing being an experience, the logos, the marketing, the hash itself. And then even if you receive it as fresh press, you're part of that experience. You're actually curing your own hash. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you both hanging out with me. I know we've been talking for quite a while, so I'll start kind of wrapping it up. But on that same note, you both have mentioned the word curing a few times, and that's always something that I like to talk about. What do you guys mean by that? Um, I'd say letting it butter, letting it sit for a couple of days, letting it chill out, not, not dab it right off the press. I mean, sometimes it's enjoyable, but just letting it, just let, I don't know. The, the terpenes change, I feel like. It's just. Is it. Yeah, almost, it stay sealed. Is it almost like a, do you feel like it's a settling? Like you're letting the resin settle? Something like that. It, it just, I usually it usually gets more like a, more of a, a clearer taste. Tastes a lot smoother when it's cured. Like a fine um, wine. Yeah. Just it makes it a lot smoother, I think. That's turn it into that vintage. Yeah, so by having a product and leaving it for some time, you feel there's a benefit to that. Yeah, yeah I do. Okay, cool. Um, one of the things that you guys brought up was collaborating with other people. I know in the past you've collaborated. You brought up Ati a few times. I think they processed your stuff at some point, right? Yeah, he ran our first batch ever. And yeah, then we had a cold room. Well, before you had a cold room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, but at the same time, you guys have processed stuff for. Other people, right? Like Sog Army, I think, is one of the people you guys work with. Yep. Yeah, we do. Sog's awesome. Happy Puppy, they're some awesome growers. And they're cool to work with. It's just people that are down to earth and people that we can trust. You know, it's hard to find people to trust these days. Uh, they trusted us from day one. 
Like they were the first company that let us come into their facility and we showed them how to harvest for the fresh frozen for the hash. And um, yeah, they were the first ones that just trusted us and just gave us a bunch of material just because we told them we could do it. And we did like, and uh, we've been working with them for what, like a year and a half ever since, just because everything has gone well every single time, like it should, you know, I hear a lot of stories about people that get screwed over and, it's it's super shitty because some people can have like images online that you think are great people, but then you could hear how many like growers they may have screwed over on stuff. So we don't work with too many people, but the people that we do work with, we consider friends like happy puppy and Omega farms. Yeah. What's key would you say to maintaining health in those relationships? Mutual respect and communication, communication, telling somebody how you feel uh avoiding problems like simmering problems uh before they hit like a head like just always being open about how you feel if you're uncomfortable about a situation how you're going to do something um being transparent and just showing respect letting people know that you appreciate the time that they're giving you you appreciate the time they've put into growing the fact that we grow i feel like is huge like some hash makers that uh just process for people might not have the same appreciation for the material that they intake for collabs as people that grow themselves because they know how much really has gone into it and i really appreciate anybody that trusts me with giving me their material because i know how much goes into it yeah that totally makes sense and kind of on a different note since we talked about branding and image i'm curious if you now being in norcal for a few years and coming across so many people that are growing or growing their own do you feel like there's a lot of great growers in that area that maybe what holds them back is having a brand or is having some clever social media account yeah no doubt there's people that have just been out here growing for 20 30 years and doing it amazingly but they don't have any clue about instagram or they don't really care at all and so like their farms may not have a presence whatsoever in the community or in the market but they may be some of the highest quality growers there are and i've ran into some that are like that and uh it sucks because uh, it sucks that there isn't like Prop 215 kind of gave people like that at least somewhat of a forum because you could get more exposure for your brand just being out there because the old school people, they're more of like in people type of uh, people. Like they want to chat in person. They want to go to events. It's all face-to-face interactions. Whereas the new generations, everything's online. Everything's through Instagram. It's all chat. Like you can have direct access to anybody instantly. And that has spawned a lot of collaborations. But for the people that don't know how to use it, it's probably isolated them in the fact that everybody that does know how to use it is collaborating or communicating with each other. And these other people may be kind of getting left out or left behind. Um, So that's one thing that I I hope that there's a way going into the Prop 64 where these uh, small growers in NorCal that have been doing it for years and relying on it don't all get pushed out by the bigger brands and uh, the bigger budgets. Um, 
just because they may not have the same spotlight right now. Right. You brought up earlier the need for possibly having more help. And I've seen you guys post semi-recently about needing people to help out, having some extra hands. I'm curious what you're looking for in a person or an individual when seeking someone to help you. Trustworthiness is the first thing. And hard work. <laughs> yeah, you got to be able to put a lot of hours in. You have to be passionate about the plan or you're never going to want to do the work that we yeah, do. It's all going to be hard work. What'd you say, Sam? Sorry. You got to do it for the love of the weed or else you're not going to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> That's for sure. We love the weed. Like people come here for like a couple weeks or a month at a time and can't cut it because it's just literally work every single day. And it's rewarding for us, like, especially once you get resin in a jar and you're just getting high off of the stuff that you work so hard for, it's worth it. But yeah, if you don't really love it, a lot of people just can't make it. And I know a lot of friends like that have farms in NorCal that just go through different workers every single year, just because a lot of people, they come in with this like uh, assumption that it's just going to be easy weed work and you're just going to be getting high and partying because that's kind of like, yeah, kind of like weed just kind of has that idea to it, like. But it's not so, like, in the production phase, at least. Like, it's a lot of hard work. And as, as far as high quality goes, like, it is a lot of hard work. Just constant care and attention. Yeah, as you guys uh, say, uh, the smaller the batches, the sweeter the juice, right? Yeah, less is more. So, Sam, you brought up something that I was going to ask about anyways. But I heard you say that you guys have a secret reserve stash of uh real deal <laughs> yeah it's just a little bit diminished right now but it's about to build back up <laughs> yeah i bet that's a treat going through that stuff uh once you have that's it all locked in there for sure for sure just anything in there that stands out to you that you still get around there's some sherb that's still stashed away that's that's something special. Yeah, the Stardust Sherbert from last year. We never released it. It yielded 2%, but it was like some of the most amazing chirps ever. And we just yeah. kept it all for our head and do a couple so, of For another year. <laughs> hey, that's a, that's a perk of the work, right? Yeah, yeah. no doubt. 100%. Uh, favorite grower or hash maker to collab with? That we have collabed with or do that we want to? Either or, both. I want to collab with Zushi. Stacks hit me up. Um, that's probably the best flower, but I don't know if it'll yield. Um, yeah, I love Zushi too. The best ones that we work with are definitely Happy Puppy and Omega. Um we got a couple of things lined up for this year that I don't want to speak on yet, but I'm really excited about a couple of people that we might be working with this year. If we decide to go into the tradition or uh, into the recreational market, some people I would like to work with would be, uh, I like dragon with matches. Dragon. Uh, yeah. He has Game good stuff. 
Wonder Brett has crazy stuff. But yeah, a lot of people, um, a lot of my friends, at least, that are the best growers, they single source, so I know I won't be seeing their stuff. <laughs> yeah, all of our favorite growers all turn their shit in the hash, so we don't get to see it. Get to smoke at some of it, though. Hey, that's pretty good still. Yeah, for sure. If you guys had to pick your top three hash makers. You want to go first? You want me to go first? You can go first. Um, top three. Probably uh, West Coast. I give number one to. Um, That's West Coast Alchemy, right? West Coast yeah. Alchemy. Yeah, he's the boy. Otzi Hash and let's say, I'll say NorCal Organics. I would definitely say West Coast Alchemy. Hmm. Best hash. See, I haven't even got to smoke anybody's hash lately besides <laughs> West Coast and ours. <laughs> We've been stuck on the hill. Um, I used to always buy hash off a of third gen. I got to say Brandon, dude. Like, he was, uh, like, uh, one of the reasons why we do all this. Like, it has to be Brandon. For sure. West Coast. Yeah. And then Auti. Like, Auti is really, like, he gave us shit ton of advice. Um, more about growing than anything. Uh, and he collabed with us and really set the brand off for us. But, like, I've never, I don't think, had any better six-star than his. So, yeah, him, Brandon, and West Coast Alchemy. Third gen, West Coast Alchemy, and Auti. Yeah, no, that sounds like a like a killer lineup. I've I've actually never tried any West Coast Alchemy, but yeah, third gen stuff they is killer. killer. Uh, the, the little bit I've ever tried of Ati, which actually was keep for keeping keeping it coastal, was pretty killer as well. So yeah, that's a pretty good uh, pretty good lineup. And if you both had to pick a hash maker that you could hear from on the podcast, who would it be? West Coast. Has Masonic been on here yet? Does he count as a hash maker? Yeah. You got to get Masonic on here. You got to get Masonic on here, brother. (laughs) So Masonic has actually been on the podcast, but he's on what I call the web series. So that's like (laughs) for the, for the paid members only. So literally, you pay five bucks and you can listen uh, to his episode. But yeah, uh, he's he's a funny guy, man. So it was an interesting, <laughs> interesting talk with him. I'm going to have to go pay for that right after this. <laughs> he's a funny guy, man. So yeah, it's it's definitely worth uh, listening. But dudes, I, I really appreciate you taking so much time um, sitting down and talking with me, especially you, Dustin. I know you're kind of on a mini vacation, so I, I appreciate you you know, setting the time to do this. Again, this is Dustin and Sam from The Real Deal Resin. You can follow them on Instagram at Real Deal Resin and then two underscores after. Is there anything else that you guys want to say? Thank you. Smoke hash. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, get high. Smoke more high. Well, again, I appreciate you guys. We'll catch you later. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.